If you had a Hebrew Bible, you would not find the book of 2 Kings in it, because this book is uh, really part of the one book of Kings in the Hebrew Bible. First and Second Kings are all one book in the Hebrew. And they're quite aptly named, the book of Kings. For if you've read these books, you will note that everything focuses and centers on the king. And these books trace the various rulers of God's kingdom, beginning with Saul and David and Solomon, and then comes the division of the kingdom under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and uh, uh, then comes the kings of Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, these two books trace out for us the dynasties in, uh, in the northern kingdom, and the single dynasty of the house of David in the southern kingdom, and what happened in each kingdom under each king. And in each case, the spotlight is always on the king. For it's what the king does in relationship to God that determines how the nation goes. Uh, the character of the kingdom is largely determined by the character of the king. And when the king walked with God in obedience and uh, humility, and uh, served and worshipped and obeyed God in the temple in Jerusalem, or as later in the northern kingdom, in the uh, temple that was built in Samaria, God's blessing and prosperity and victory rested upon the kingdom. Now, there was no blessing or prosperity or victory for the northern kingdom because they had no godly kings. But in the southern kingdom... In the house of David, there were godly kings that appeared from time to time, uh, interspersed with those who did not walk with God. And when the king walked with God, there was always victory and blessing and prosperity. The rains came at the right time. The crops grew. The, the, uh, uh, the uh, economy of the land flourished. There was victory over their enemies, even when their enemies came against them in uh, in allied uh, forces, nevertheless, there was always victory when the king walked with God. But when the king disobeyed, when he worshipped other gods, immediately famines broke out, droughts came, invasions came from without, and they were usually uh, defeats on the part of Israel, though occasionally God gave blessing and victory. Uh, but uh, for the most part, the land fell under uh, difficult and extremely serious conditions. And these kings of the, very, of, the, of the two kingdoms, divisions of the kingdom, when they were in obedience, they were always types of Christ, such as David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Joash and Jehoshaphat. They pictured something of the sovereign kingly reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when they were in disobedience, they were types or pictures of the Antichrist, the man of sin who is yet to appear upon the earth, the one of whom Jesus himself said to Israel, I am come in my own name, and you receive me not. Another shall come in his... I am come rather in my father's name, and you receive me not. Another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. And it's this man of sin 
the quintessence of human evil that is pictured by the kings of Israel and Judah when they walk in disobedience. Now, the interesting thing about this, and the thing that makes these books of perennial fascinating interest to us, is that this kingdom in Israel is a picture of each of our own lives. That we too are kingdoms like this. And as I trace this pattern out, you'll see exactly what I mean. This nation of Israel was particularly picked out from the nations to be that kind of a representative of the individual human life. God chose Israel. Israel did not come into the position of, of prominence and uh, of favor in God's sight by their own efforts. God chose them. And he formed them and molded them and produced a nation that would be a sample to all the world of what God is willing to do in any individual's life. So that as we read these books, we'll find that if we translate it into the kingdom of our own life, we find ourselves right in the midst of these problems and and uh blessings and possibilities that are reflected in these books of kings. Uh, from the beginning, there were always two divisions in the monarchy. Even under David, this was true. When David first came to the throne, he was only king of Judah for seven years. And it was not until the after that seven-year reign that he became king over both divisions of the kingdom. So that this division between the Ten tribes in the north and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, where Jerusalem was located, was a division right from the very start. Now, it was intended to be so, but they were to be under one king. And uh, they represent the divisions in the human life. Every one of us looking at each other knows that we, we are, uh, there are two evident divisions of, of human life. There is, first of all, the body. We're so aware of the body. We take it around with us. We spend our time taking care of it, primping it, dressing it up, painting it, unpainting it, and all the, un- all the necessary things to keep it looking well. And unfortunately, most of life seems to be spent in taking care of the body. But every one of us knows that there's more than a body in a man. There's a soul as well. That invisible part, which contains the personality, which is so obviously gone when we look at a corpse, and the terrible tragedy of death, is not its helplessness, but its vacuity, its emptiness. And uh, here in the uh, two kingdoms, you have this division represented in human life. The ten king, the ten tribes of the north, are representative of the body. While Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of the south, represent the soul. For it was in this tribe that was located the capital city, Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem was a temple. And in the temple, God dwelt. Just as in the human life, we know from the scriptures, not only is there a body and soul, but within the soul. Uh, so closely affiliated to it and linked to it that only the word of God can divide between the soul and spirit is this dwelling place of God, the human spirit. 
And it's there that the that the Holy Spirit takes up his residence when he comes into the human heart. And that's what makes man, man as God intended, man to be. Man without the Holy Spirit dwelling in the human spirit is simply an abbreviated, uh, completely incomplete uh, sample of what a man is supposed to be. But when God the Holy Spirit comes in, he takes up his residence in the human spirit, in the temple of the body. And you remember in the New Testament, this figure is drawn for us. And we're told that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. They have the Spirit of God dwelling within us in our human spirit, governing our soul, if uh, we permit it to be, and uh, thereby adjusting and controlling the body, the outward life. And so you are very much in these books of Kings. And if you read them that way, you'll see many wonderful and helpful and profitable lessons on this. This uh, temple of the Spirit was in Jerusalem, and all the worship of the kingdom was to be there. was never to be in any other place, for there in the temple in Jerusalem, God had put his name. Just as in the human kingdom, the temple, the, the, the human spirit, is to be the place of worship. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well about God, the nature of God? God is a spirit, he said, and they that worship him must worship him where? In spirit, in spirit, and in truth. For God, he says, is looking for such to worship him. He can find lots of worshipers who are worshiping him in soul, just mere soulish, emotional worship. But he's not interested in that. He's looking at that, he's looking for that worship that is centered right in the deepest part of human nature in the spirit. And this is figured by the temple. Now your will is the king in your kingdom. And nothing can take place in your kingdom except as it passes uh, by the, uh, passes through the authority of your will. Therefore, what your will does determines what your life will be like. If you willingly, obediently yield yourself to the influences brought into your life by means of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your human spirit, you are like the, the kingdom in the days of David, when David walked with God and worshipped in the temple and ruled over the combined kingdoms of the north and the south together, and the land flourished in abundance and prosperity, and the influence of that little kingdom reached out unto the uttermost parts of the earth. But if, like many of the following kings, you walk in disobedience, if your will is is defiant, if it's set against the things of God, if you refuse his sovereignty and dominion in your life, then there come into your life the same kind of evil, invasions from outside that you cannot, you have no longer any strength to repel, inward corruptions from within that ruin and, and take their toll upon the life, your life and the life of those that you influence, and thus the kingdom falls into ruin. Now you see the picture, don't you? Now as we trace this, we notice that Solomon, the son of David, introduced the principle that began to deteriorate the kingdom. He fell in love with the daughter of Pharaoh. 
Now, there was nothing wrong with him falling in love. God approves of that. But he, there was something definitely wrong in him falling in love with the daughter of Pharaoh. For Pharaoh, Pharaoh of all people, was the king over Egypt, the very place from which God in grace and power had redeemed his people. And is always in, in, in scripture a type or a picture of the world in its allurement to the human heart. And when Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh into his court, this opened the door for alliances with other, uh, other fair, lovely girls from other tribes around, and soon he had a thousand wives, and with them along came their idols and all the other things, and the kingdom began to deteriorate under Solomon because he allowed the enticements and allurements of the world to, to draw away his heart's interest from the place where his worship should have been centered in the temple. You can draw the picture in parallel in your own life. Then Rehoboam, his son, actually split the kingdom so that the northern ten tribes were removed from the southern, and a separate kingdom was set up in the north. Uh, and if this is representative, as I've suggested, of the body of man, this is simply suggestive that when our, our spirit loses fellowship with the Holy Spirit within it, that it isn't very long before the body begins to show the results of this, that it's the body that begins to disintegrate. Fleshly indulgence sets in, and uh, bodily uh, wrongdoing soon follows, as witness the first chapter of Romans. Then came Jeroboam, the son of Rehoboam, and it was Jeroboam who introduced the great sin for which the northern kingdom was noted from then on. Jeroboam set up two calves in Bethel to worship. Now remember when the, when the Israelites were uh, down at the foot of Mount Sinai and, Mount, and Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the law that uh, Aaron the priest uh, led the people in the building of, two, uh, of a calf of gold which they began to worship. But they called it Jehovah. It wasn't that they were denying Jehovah their God, but it was that they were misrepresenting him by this calf, which was like the gods of the other nations, and yet they were calling it by the name of the true God. And this became an abomination in the sight of God and was eliminated from the nation until the days of Rehoboam, who introduced two calves of gold, one at Bethel and one at Dan in the north of the kingdom, and said, These be your gods, Israel, worship here. And by this you have represented that form of godliness which denies the power thereof, that outward conformity to Christian faith and Christian realities which lacks that inner response of the Spirit. You know, it's quite possible to make every good appearance of being a Christian so that you fool everybody but God. You can come to church, you can stand when everybody stands and sit down when everybody sits down and hold the hymn book at the right angle and bow your head at the proper prescribed angle at the proper prescribed time and all these things. But inwardly, there can be no worship at all. And this is what is pictured 
figured here in the worship which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, introduced into the northern kingdom. Now, from that moment on, these two men, these two kings, David and Jeroboam, become the uh, representative of the two principles that are traced throughout the kingdoms. And uh, uh, the, uh, they become measuring sticks for the kings that followed them. And if you've read these books, you'll notice that time and time again it says of a king, either he walked in the ways of David his father and worshipped God and served the Lord his God and put away the high places and the idols and tore down all the false and abominable worship that Israel had fallen into. Or it says he walked in the ways of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and caused Israel to go a-whoring after the gods that Jeroboam had set up. And it was either one or the other. Now in Israel, the northern kingdom, there were no godly kings. It was just a, complete, a continual alternation of kings, one murdering his predecessor and coming to the throne by that means, but God in grace intervening from time to time with sending prophets in an effort to arrest the fall of the northern kingdom. In Judah, there were a few godly kings, and they stand out like lights in the darkness of this southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah were the primary ones. But all through this time of decline, there were various efforts by God made to arrest the corruption and uh, to stop the decay of the kingdoms. And these largely centered around the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And these two books of Kings are noteworthy primarily for the ministry of these two mighty prophets of God. Elijah and Elisha. And uh, there were other prophets ministering. These were the days when the prophets were speaking out for God. God never spoke to the nation through a king. He used the king in government. He used the king to control. He used the king to uh, administer justice and to, uh, and as I've suggested, the life and the character of the kingdom was due to the, uh, reflected the character of the king. But when God wanted to speak to the nation, he sent a prophet. And Hosea and Amos and Joel and uh, uh Isaiah and Jeremiah, these were the prophets that ministered. But the only ones that appear in First and Second Kings is Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was a rugged character. He went around with a leather, gir leather girdle and hair cloth, uh, dressed in hair cloth. What a scratchy business that must have been. And a rugged, tough character he was. Time after time he met the king face to face and face to face delivered a message of judgment and his life was at stake. But time after time he was faithful as God protected him. And we have that wonderful story of how he met with 400 priests on top of Mount Carmel and single-handedly defied the power of this abominable worship in Israel and remember challenged them to a contest. Uh, as to who could bring down fire from heaven. And in that most remarkable scene, uh, he taunted them as they went about cutting themselves, cutting their flesh, and crying out to their God to send down fire. And uh, he taunted them and said, what's the matter? Where is your God? Is he out to lunch? 
Has he gone on a journey? Is he asleep? Why doesn't he answer? And then at last, when they had exhausted themselves, he called down fire from Jehovah and licked up the not only the sacrifice, but the water that had been poured upon it and the very stones of the altar and everything was gone. And he won a mighty triumph. Now, this was the character of Elijah. Elijah was primarily the, the prophet of the law. And it was his ministry to bring the thunderings of the law to effect in the nation Israel and to try to wake it up to the distressful condition of the nation. Therefore, his was a ministry of blood and fire and judgment. And it was followed, however, by Elisha, who carried on, as we're told, who is in a sense linked together with Elijah. You remember his mantle fell upon Elisha when Elijah was caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire, and Elisha's, Elijah's mantle fell, and Elisha picked it up and donned the mantle and went on. But his ministry is totally different than that of Elisha's. It was a ministry of grace and sweetness and glory throughout Israel. Now, why? Well, if you carefully compare this, you'll see that these two men together prefigure the ministry of Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus came to Israel, it was in a similar condition of decay and corruption as when Elijah came to the nation. Herod was on the throne as a vassal of Rome, the high priest's office had gone into had had fallen into the hands of the Sadducees, who were the moral, who were the rationalists of that day, and had turned the temple into a place of corruption and of commerce. And uh, the nation had fallen into dark and bitter times. And the Lord Jesus' ministry to official Israel was in the power of Elijah. Remember, he began his ministry with the cleansing of the temple. As he seized the cord, with, uh, made a whip of many cords, and with his arm bared and his eyes flashing fire, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, drove the money changers out of the temple, turning over the tables and flinging the stuff and all the refuse out into the courtyard. And that marked the close of his ministry to official Israel just as Elijah's ministry was one of thundering judgment. But our Lord's ministry to the individual was the ministry of Elisha, the ministry of grace, the ministry of winsome sweetness, of compassionate tenderness and helping. And uh, there's another interesting comparison in these, in that Elisha also seems to picture the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church after the day of Pentecost. For Elisha's ministry began with a man ascended into heaven. And from, uh, from that moment, Elisha went on, and his very first uh, uh, miracle was a miracle depicting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was a putting of salt, remember, into the water and the sweetening of the water. And you have the ministry of salt, the, the, the miracle concerning salt, the miracle of the oil that could not stop, that kept flowing continually, which is another symbol of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of uh, water suddenly appearing in the parched and barren, famine-stricken fields. And uh, uh, then there was the, uh, his miracle of resurrection to the little boy 
who died, and uh, he raised the de- from the dead as he laid his staff upon him and then breathed upon him. This was not mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It was a genuine resurrection. And then there was the ministry of the healing of leprosy and of the feeding of, of a thousand or more people and uh, the restoring of activity and the giving back of the uh, in causing the iron axe head to float on the top of the water. And even finally after he died, when he was dead and buried, somebody threw, uh, some, uh, a group of men were, were trying to bury a man when they were suddenly surprised by a mob of bandits and they had to dispose of the body and they threw him into the, into the tomb of Elisha. And when the body of the dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he sprang into life again. Why? Well, all of this, you see, indicating the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a decadent life by grace trying to woo back and win back a heart that is gradually drifting on into the blindness and darkness of corruption. And even to the point when it looks as though everything is dead and absolutely gone, still there's the ability to transform into life at the touch of the Holy Spirit. Well, the, the, the book of Second Kings traces this decline of these kingdoms. And Israel goes first, is taken captive by Assyria as it comes down out of the north and surrounds Jerusalem. And under Shalmaneser, the, uh, surrounds Samaria, rather. And under Shalmaneser, the northern kingdom is carried away into total and final captivity. If you want the report of that from the scriptures, Turn to chapter 17 of 2 Kings, verse 13. We read, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings which he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images of two calves. And they made an Asherah, that's a sex god, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. What a picture this is of the, of the evil results of sin in the human life, particularly as it affects the outward life, the bodily life. Have you ever noticed this? We speak of the marks of sin upon some individual. And it's amazing how early those marks begin to appear when there's a dissolute, uh, debauched life. I'm not talking about the normal... uh, Marks of old age, these come upon all of us, even uh, the righteous, uh, if there be any among us. 
You know those. The five B's, for instance, of uh, middle age. Baldness, bifocals, bridges, bay window, and bunions. <laughs> those are the normal marks of decay. But I'm talking about... I'm talking about the marks of coarseness and vulgarity that come into, that mark the body of man when it is expended in high living, as we call it, dissolute life, drinking, uh, overindulgence in food and drink and all the other things, leave its mark upon the body, and the body is first to go, just as Israel was the first to go, the northern kingdom here. And then Judah was next. And Judah was arrested. Their decay was arrested for a while by the glorious story of Hezekiah, who uh, arose in the midst of darkness. His own father had been an ungodly king, and his own son following him on the throne was an ungodly king. But Hezekiah was mocked by the grace of God. And the kingdom had fallen into such decay that the first act of Hezekiah when he came to the throne was to cleanse the temple. And it took the Levites ten days to carry all the rubbish and junk out of the temple before they could even purify it for the beginning of services again. That's how corrupt the nation had become. And Hezekiah also introduced the Passover and... Uh, um, was the one who destroyed, you remember, the brazen serpent that the people had been worshiping that God had used for their blessing when Moses lifted it up in the wilderness. But Hezekiah called it, in fine sarcasm, a piece of brass and broke it in pieces and destroyed it because it had become idolatrous, just as many things that once were used in blessing to us sometimes become idolatrous to us as we hang on to them. Uh, just because of the sentimental value. And Hezekiah broke it in pieces. What a brave and, and courageous thing that he did. And it was Hezekiah, remember, whose life was miraculously extended when the shadow on the sundial turned back 10 degrees and he was allowed 15 more years of life. But in those 15 years, he uh, had a son named Manasseh who became the worst king Israel ever, uh, Judah ever had, and who reigned for the longest time upon the throne, 55 years of ungodly reign. So that some have said that Hezekiah is the man who lived too long. And if he had uh, accepted the word of the Lord to him first, he would, they would have been spared the terrible deeds under Manasseh. But so the kingdom declined, and finally Judah was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, the, the symbol of corruption and defilement. And then, for a, a few years, the temple remained in Jerusalem, but at last it too was stripped and burned, and the walls of the city broken down, and the people carried away completely into captivity. And the book ends with Jehoiakim, the last king of Israel, uh, blind, his eyes put out by the, uh, by the uh, cruelty of the king of Babylon, and his son slain in, very, in front of his eyes before his eyes were put out, living out his days in captivity in Babylon. And that was the last king that Israel ever had. The last king they ever had.
You remember in the tumult and all the tremendous uh, confusion in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover week when our Lord was crucified, that as Jesus stood before Pilate, and he was attempting to to uh, free him, having found no fault in him, that he offered their king, uh, their king to the nation. He said, Behold your king. And uh, the crowd meant it when they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. And it was Caesar's uh, governor who taught Israel its lesson by causing to have written an inscription which was nailed above the cross, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that poor people will never know another uh, moment of, of genuine prosperity and blessing, spiritually and physically, until the time when they shall see him whom they have mourned, whom they have pierced, Zechariah says, and mourn for him and recognize the king that was sent to them in Lovias. Now, this is the message. And you see what this is? A picture of a wasted life. Here is a man. Here is a picture of an individual who is a Christian in whom the foundation which uh, no other man can lay of Jesus Christ is laid. But upon it he has built nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Because in the secret place of his heart, in the will, he has refused to walk in obedience to the things revealed unto him through the Holy Spirit dwelling in the temple of his human spirit. And as a result, his life becomes more and more uh, characterized by decay and corruption and defilement, beginning with the body, and then more evident in the personality till it comes there sets in cruelty and hardness and defiance. And finally, the temple itself is burned. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that there, for such a one, he says, there is the judgment of fire and their works are burned, though they themselves are saved, yet so as by fire. And the whole lesson of the book, of course, is it need not be so. God is continually interrupting our lives with the evidences of his, of his grace, sending to us those influences which try to arrest us in these stubborn, deliberate ways by which we insist on having our own way. And we can go ahead. God will not stop us, just as he didn't stop them. We can go on beating our way to the top of the heap and winning the acclaim and the approval perhaps of the world around about us and many of the Christians also as well. But one day we shall have to stand naked before the one who loved us and who gave himself for us and whom we have all our life long denied him his right to be God in our in the temple of our spirit. We've robbed him of his inheritance in the saints. And in that day, John says, we shall be ashamed before him at his coming. May God grant that the lesson of these books may come home to our hearts. So we bow together in prayer. Our Father, 
We know that this is not merely recorded for our enjoyment or our astonishment, but rather for our instruction. All these things were written that we may see ourselves, and seeing ourselves, make that adjustment to the Holy Spirit within that causes our kingdom to (coughs) flourish in abundance, in victory, in prosperity, in joy, in peace, in blessing. We ask this, Lord, for each tonight. In Christ's name, amen.